Bibles with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 14. We're going to begin in verse 15 and was going to try to wrap up in verse 24 this morning, but we didn't quite make it. Uh, we'll finish that up in another week here, but Luke chapter 14. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been here to take a look at Luke, but the last time we were here, we found ourselves with Jesus in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees who had invited Jesus over for a Sabbath meal. And the intentions of the Pharisees in inviting Jesus over at this time was really less than integratable. And they were trying to see if they could find something by which that, they, that he would say or do in breaking of their man-made laws pertaining to and related to the Sabbath. But instead of trapping him or causing him to stumble in any way, it's been Jesus who has turned the table, so to speak, by challenging them in their man-made religious system. And yet, as we found, the lessons that Jesus has been teaching them since the beginning of chapter 14 have been very applicable to us as well. We've had lessons on hypocrisy in our religion in verses 1 through 6. We've had a lesson in pride in verses 7 through 11. And we've had a lesson in showing and demonstrating mercy in verses 12 through 14. But rather than just teaching and showing these Pharisees right etiquette and how to be a good guest at a party or even a charitable host, these really have been fundamental lessons about inheriting the kingdom of God. There are deep and abiding spiritual lessons here that we all need to be mindful of in the nature of the future kingdom. And so I think it's of vital importance that as we study these passages and these texts of Scripture together, that we somehow don't try to disconnect future events from our day-to-day lives in the here and now or even vice versa, and think that these lessons uh, apply only to our daily lives and they have nothing to do with the future. Because what we're seeing from Jesus is how he is consistently connecting eschatology with ethics. In other words, how you think and view future events has a direct correlation to how you live in the here and now. From verses 1 through 6, a person that knows that God sees all things and knows all things and knows that no hypocrite in, will, uh, in their practice of religion will inherit the kingdom of God, they will make it their business to spurn hypocrisy and to do the great and hard work of guarding your heart, confessing sin, maintaining integrity before the Lord. Or as Jesus put it, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. From verses 7 through 11 in Luke 14, a person who knows that no spiritually proud person will inherit the kingdom of God will take the low road of humility before God and man, constantly acknowledging his or her unworthiness in the least of all of God's mercies, and will esteem others better than himself in allowing God to exalt him at the proper time. Or, as Jesus put it, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And from verses 12 through 14, a person who knows that a merciful God has transferred him out of darkness into light 
and will show him the greatest of mercies by making him a joint heir with Christ in heaven, will in turn be merciful to those who are around themselves and will not neglect an opportunity to give and to serve those who cannot give back. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. So there is this constant connection that Jesus has been making for us between looking to the future and living in the present. Now, many of you have probably heard a statement that somebody can be so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Maybe you've even used that phrase yourself once or twice. But the biblical way of thinking is completely the opposite of that. The Bible insists that you are of no earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. And in fact, having a heavenly mindset will actually promote your discipleship and your communion with God while you are still here on the earth. We need to be a bunch of Jonathan Edwards who cry out, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs and meditate daily on heaven and the eternal glory to, have, uh, glory to come so that we can walk in closer communion and fellowship with God. Now, as we're going to see in our text this morning, there is at least one Pharisee in this group that understood that Jesus was talking more than just about the here and the now. He could comprehend that Jesus wasn't just talking about being a good guest or a good host or who to invite, who not to invite. But what this Pharisee understood was that Jesus was fundamentally talking about eternity. So I want us to read our text together this morning in Luke chapter 14 so we can set it before our hearts and our minds and see what God's word has to say to us today. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, I want to invite you to do so. We're starting in verse 15 of Luke chapter 14. God's inerrant and holy word says this. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you, have, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need the help of your Holy Spirit. Some of us need help in staying focused. 
Some of us need help in keeping our minds sharp and actually listening to what is being said. But Father, we just pray that you would bring your spirit here to indwell in our hearts so that we can understand your word rightly and apply it so that we can obey you and cherish you and love you with greater and greater affection. Father, we thank you for your word, and we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There has always been a foundational understanding of biblical history, and therefore of all of human history for that matter, that there is a great conflict going on between two antithetical powers. And we would find that fundamental root of that great conflict stems from way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of man. And so for us to understand Genesis chapter 3 is to understand the reality of the world in which we live today. The problems of humanity, the fallenness of society, the problems of civilization, even the universe itself can all be condensed down into this one incredibly important portion of Scripture. If you happen to watch the news at any point in the day or get on the internet and look at the news, you are watching Genesis chapter 3 played out because it defines why the world is the way that it is. It defines why man is the way he is. All the problems that we know of in this world exist as a result of sin, and that sin can be traced back to Genesis chapter 3. But it also helps us understand that there is a plan of salvation. Because it's in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that we have what church historians have uh, called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. And it's at this point in the conflict, at its very beginning, that God gives us an amazing promise of a future Redeemer. A Savior who will come and be victorious over Satan. One who will come and conquer the father of our woes with a decisive victory by dealing him a crushing blow on his head. And so from that point forth, as the scriptures are unfolded, we find that the identity of this Redeemer is revealed in greater and greater and greater detail. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he will be the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 49.10, he will be of the tribe of Judah. Deuteronomy 18.18 reveals that he will be a prophet greater than Moses. In Psalm 2, he will be declared the Son of God. In Psalm 110, he will be a priest like Melchizedek. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says that he will be born of a virgin. Isaiah 16, verses 4 and 5, shows that he will reign on the throne of David. Jeremiah chapter 31 says that he will be conceived of the Holy Spirit. And Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, says that he will be preceded by a forerunner. Nearly 120 Old Testament prophecies clearly point to the identification of Jesus Christ as the Messiah and as that Savior who will appear to destroy the works of the devil, as 1 John 3.8 tells us, and once again restore all things as new that the fall in Genesis chapter 3 has left us. So when we come to the first century of Israel, we have entering into the 
the stage of human history, the separate ones or the Pharisees. And we find them on the wrong side of this great conflict. They were the ones who were supposed to be the most zealous and the most religious in all the world for the things of God. And yet what they did was abandon the true religion of the heart and exchange it for a cumbersome, superficial, external righteousness of their own making. They were the ones who were supposed to be the experts of the Old Testament, guardians of God's word, and yet Jesus' opinion of them is that they actually knew the word of God very, very little with this phrase that he used, have you not read? In John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus even tells them, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. They failed to see who Christ actually was, and they ultimately rejected him as Messiah, the promised one to Israel. In spite of the overwhelming evidence that Jesus displayed before their very eyes, they still never believed in who he said he was. They dismissed his miracles. They all but ignored his healings. They spurned his teachings. And in the end, they rejected him. Now, this does not mean that their theology was completely debased and corrupt. For example, they did believe in angels. They did believe in demons. They believed in Satan. They believed in human responsibility. And if there was one thing they could agree with Jesus on, it is that there would be a resurrection. They knew and they affirmed that the scriptures promised a resurrected life. In Psalm 16, in the beginning in verse 9, David writes, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or literally the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. So David is expressing that there's there's this great hope that he is in the Lord and that God will usher him into his presence where he will find his ultimate fulfillment and joy. Let me just give you a couple more. Psalm 49, 15 says, But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. In Job chapter 19 and verses 25 through 27, he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19 says, Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. And so the resurrection was something that the Pharisees could find some common ground with Jesus on, because it was their great hope that through all of their obedience and self-sacrifice to this minutia of a religious system, they would gain eternal life and enter the kingdom of God. I read, for example, in some of the Sabbath laws, that if you would, on the Sabbath, 
throw something up with your right hand and catch it with your left, you were guilty of violating the Sabbath. However, if you threw it up with your right hand and you caught it with your right, you were not guilty of breaking the Sabbath. That's how detailed they were in their man-made laws. And so when Jesus mentions about being repaid in the resurrection of the righteous at the end of verse 14, it, it perks up the ears of one of the guests at the Sabbath meal. And we find his response beginning in verse 15 of our text when it says, When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, we don't know who this expression was directed to exactly because the scriptures don't specifically tell us. And some commentators are really pretty dogmatic about it being directed to his compadres at the table. He could be raising up his glass and looking around at his fellow Pharisees as a means of saying to them, here is something we finally agree with Jesus on. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Or it could have been one of those awkward moments in the conversation where he just let out this outburst to sort of break the tension since they just got confronted with their hypocrisy and their pride and their lack of mercy. Much like we might do in a conversation with someone, you know, we kind of put our hands behind our back and say, how about those Buckeyes? You know, we just try to break the tension a little bit. But either way, the statement in and of itself is true. It's one of those great salvation promises that the King of Kings is preparing an eternal banquet for his people. In Psalm 23 and 5, we say, you prepare a table for me. In the presence of my enemies. In Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6, it says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow. That's steak for you people out there. That would make Ruth Chris look like White Castle, okay? It's going to be refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples. Even the veil which is stretched over all nations, he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears away from all their faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all of the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord in whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. And so one of the great hopes of the resurrection and the consummation of salvation is that there is going to be this great and magnificent banquet in the presence of God. More than likely, being a Pharisee, he would have presumed to be uh, at the banquet and even been given a place of honor by God because of all the regulations that he kept and all the rituals he observed. And many people are in the exact same place. Many people expect to enter heaven because of everything they've done, and they are going to go to the great day of judgment and say, you know what, God? I was basically a good person. I did more good than I did bad. I occasionally gave to charity. I was nice to my neighbors. I never stole anything major. I even tried to follow the golden rule to the best of my ability. 
But what they don't realize is what they are trying to say to God is that it was not necessary for God to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for me. They're saying to God, you know what, God, thanks for sending your son to die on the cross. And I'm sure there's a lot of people in this world that needed that. But that really wasn't necessary for me. And what a terrible tragedy that will be to expect heaven when God gave his son, his only son whom he loves, and you arrive there and expect to enter into the kingdom of God. You can be sure that God will not listen to such nonsense. Because to reject Jesus Christ and his gospel is the most serious of all false hopes that you could possibly have. And so at a minimum, we could say that this Pharisee understands that Jesus is speaking about eternal things when he talks about being repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. But what he fails to understand and where he errs is to presume that he would be there. Because as soon as these words fall off his lips, Jesus tells a parable in order to challenge his sincerity and confront his false sense of security. He wants to address the issue of who will really enter into the kingdom. Now we can break this down into five parts in this parable. And again, I I ran out of time. We're going to get through two. But we're going to talk about the gracious invitation, the rude rejection, There's a wider invitation, a greater inclusion, and then a final exclusion. And so, first of all, is the gracious invitation in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 says this, But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. And so traditionally, when someone was a host of a, uh, at a meal or a big dinner in this case, there would have been two invitations. The first one is much like the ones that we do for a party or a, a wedding shower or a wedding or a shower. And we send those cards in the mail that says, save the date, right? It's an advance notice that this special event is coming up and we don't want anything to conflict with it. Or we might have an RSVP, right? Let me know that you're coming. And so the custom in first century Israel was that an invitation would be sent out a couple days in advance of a, of a great event. And you would respond back to the host whether or not you were coming so that he could begin all of his prep preparations. Because the host that was going to have this large dinner just didn't pop down to Costco or his local Piggly Wiggly and then pick up a cake and a cheese tray and some chips. It took him hours and even days of preparation to slaughter the animal or several animals if necessary and roast it and to grind flour to make bread and to get everything in order to feed all of his guests. And so it was customary for the first invitation to go out and for you to confirm whether or not you were coming. And then a second more immediate invitation would go out, letting you know that everything is ready so that you would come. And we see this played out in the Old Testament in Esther chapter 5, verse 8, and verses 6 and 14. We see that twofold invitation. And also, consequently, this isn't just inviting friends over for supper. Verse 16, you'll see there that it says that this was a big dinner 
or in other translations, it uses the term a great banquet. And so the idea here is that this is not just simply a meal. This isn't just simply coming over to satisfy your hunger. It is more than just eating. It's just like some of the banquets that you and I have been to. You get, a, you get dressed up a little bit. Maybe there's someone who gives a talk or a speech. You do eat some food and you sit around the table and you might mingle around and talk with some of the people that you know. And so the imagery here is a heavenly one in which there will be more than just a satisfaction of hunger, but a satisfaction of fellowship and communion. And that's honestly really our intentions behind our fellowship meals that we have every Sunday afternoon. It's more than just crock pots and casseroles, but the intention is that it will give us an opportunity to fellowship with one another, enjoy one another, bear one another's burdens, and the food is just an added bonus. But for someone to accept this first invitation to such a lavish feast and to to decline the second was an unconscionable insult. One of the uh, writers I found said that this, and actually in the Middle East, could be a declaration of war for you to not accept a second invite. And yet, that's exactly what we see here in these three rude rejections beginning in verse 18. Verse 18 says, But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. Now, some commentators have called this the parable of the three lame excuses because that's what we have here. All three of these people replied back with their RSVPs, but when it came time to show up for dinner, they were all no-shows. But the first guy, he says, you know what? I bought some land and then I've got to go out and take a look at it. And so if we were going to rank all of these excuses, this would probably be the lamest of the lame. No Jew would ever buy some land sight unseen. And if he did, he would be considered foolish and unwise. Much like 20 or 30 years ago in the high school yearbooks, right? There was always that most likely to section, right? There would be the most likely to succeed, the most likely to write a novel, the most likely to end up on TV. And the foolish person of the class would be given the most likely to buy swampland because he wasn't the sharpest tack on the bulletin board of all the kids in the class. He was foolish, not very smart, and would have done something like this guy in the parable. And so for this guy to say that he's bought some land sight unseen is really disingenuous because no Jewish man would have ever done such a thing. They would have gone out, they would have examined it meticulously, and every foot of land would have been carefully described in the bill of sale between the two parties. But not only that, but the land would be there after the banquet. Now, the same thing could be said for the guy who bought the five yoke of oxen. They would be there after the banquet. Can you imagine today if you got on Craigslist and you received, or you, uh, maybe you received an email offering for you to purchase five cars, sight unseen, you don't know the year, the make, or the model, and you wouldn't be allowed to test drive them. You wouldn't even know if they had an engine 
or wheels or anything for that matter. Can you imagine what your husband or wife or even your parents would say to you if you did such a thing? They would look at you and say, are you out of your mind, right? And the same thing is true for this guy who bought five pair of oxen sight unseen. They could be three-legged oxen. They could have two heads and whatever. But for all he knows, just like this land, they would be there after the banquet. Now, the last one, it seems like the most plausible excuse to us of the three of us, but it is nonetheless still not a valid excuse to attend the banquet. My wife said I couldn't go, right? But in reality, the Pharisee would have found this excuse to be the most ludicrous because Jewish women did not dictate and tell their husbands what they were going to do and what they were not going to do. And so this guy, he's not even asking to be graciously excused, but he's rudely saying, I cannot come. He's not saying, please let me be excused. I'm just simply not coming. All three of these people offer up a different excuse, but on this, they all agree. They would not come to the banquet. It was an unconscionable insult to the host to accept the first, but only then to reject the second invitation. Now, I want to stop there because I didn't have time to get through the rest of this this past week, but I want us to consider a very practical application at this point. All of these three people had some sort of excuse for not coming to the banquet to feast and communion with God. Not just eat, but to be with God. All three of these people had some sort of worldly interest that captivated them, and they kept them from coming to the feast, and it was an insult not to come. And yet, on a day-to-day basis, we all make the same excuses in the world not to come to feast on God's Word and commune with our Savior through His Word and through prayer. How many of us wake up in the morning and think more about the lawn that we got to mow, much like this guy who's purchased land, more than we do our Savior in whom we should be enjoying? How many of us think about all the work that we have to do in our day and our jobs and the cars we got to wash and all of our other possessions that are just clamoring for our attention, much like this guy who bought five yoke of oxen? How many of us are thinking about our honeydew list and how we can please our parents or our spouse more than we are taking time to meet with Jesus through communion and prayer? We can very easily see who sits on the throne of our hearts by looking at what we commit our time to, what we commit our money to, what meditations are on our hearts, what we think about from day to day. We must watch our hearts and make sure that the things of this world don't overtake and captivate and have a greater desire for Jesus Christ. When we can miss out on that day-to-day feast that we can have with Jesus Christ. Every single day that you are alive, Jesus Christ is extending an invitation to you to come meet with Him. Come to me, for I have prepared a day for you in which you will know me as more and more precious to you. Are you refusing that day-to-day invitation? Men, what example are you demonstrating to your wives and your children 
with what consumes your time, with what consumes your thoughts. Parents, what example are you showing to your children as being the most important thing in your life? Is the word of God really like honey on your lips? Is your soul really like that deer that pants after water and that you pant after God? Because as we are going to move through Luke 14, we're going to find that there is a high cost of discipleship. And there should be a love for Jesus in your life that far outweighs anything else in your life. But I want to close here and ask you seriously, is there anything in this world that is more important to you than Christ? Is there anything in your life that is consuming your times and your thoughts more than Jesus Christ? What can you wean yourself off of? What can you get rid of in your day so that you can spend some time with your Savior? It may not be every single morning at the exact same time, but what is there that your heart is cherishing more than Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we just pray that we would sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, that we would desire him far above anything in this world, that our love for Jesus Christ would look like hate in relation to those that are closest to us. God, we just pray for your help in this. There are so many things in this world that are clamoring for our attention. Let us not neglect daily communion, daily walking with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we just pray these things in the precious name of your Son. Amen.